Hello and welcome to the Bible and Me podcast brought to you by Precept UK. We are a charity based here in Salisbury focused mainly on Bible study resources and it's our mission to equip people to know God deeply and to live differently as a result. For more information, visit precept.org.uk. But firstly, I just want to start this off by saying a massive thank you to all of our listeners. We are so blessed now to be releasing Series 7 and we couldn't have got there without your incredible testimonies and reviews. If you aren't already, we would love it if you would consider subscribing so that you won't miss out on ordinary people with interesting stories about an extraordinary God. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, it is a real thrill for me this morning uh, to to be welcoming uh, Robin Oak to the Bible and Me podcast today. Robin spent a career in the police, serving in many places, including London, Manchester, uh, Northern Ireland, Miami, the Isle of Man, and was also on the directing staff of the International Police College in Brams Hill. Uh, he was also serving in London at the time of the IRA bombing campaign in central London. Uh, Robin is married to Christine. They have three children, uh, Stephen, Judith and Susan. Uh, in extremely tragic circumstances, uh, in January 2003, uh, Stephen was murdered in Manchester while attempting to arrest a suspected terrorist. He was posthumously awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Um, and Robin is or has been chair of a number of organisations, including Age Concern, the Commonwealth Games, and also has been invited to be the Chancellor of the Order of St. John, which oversees 70 care homes and three eye hospitals in Israel. Uh, he's the author of uh, three books with a fourth one just completed. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Nigel. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Uh, okay, Robin. So how did you become a Christian and why do you follow Jesus? Well, I came to become a Christian when I was in my teens, but it wasn't because of the local church. Although I used to attend that, I sang in the choir there and I rang the bells once I got a bit taller. Um, but with my two sisters who are older than me, we went to church very regularly. It was really when Cherry, my older sister, who was uh, a gymnast, uh, she was a gym teacher and a representative cricketer for Surrey, she came home from college one day and said to us all as we sat around the table, I have been converted. And my parents said, what do you mean? <laughs> I've become a Christian. Well, we're all Christians, said my mother. <laughs> Cherry very gently said, well, that's not actually the case. We might be churchgoers, but uh, this has made a whole load of difference. Now, I, I have to say that briefly because it's quite a longish story, but Cherry and I therefore were bonded much closer because of her sport and my sport, which I loved. And eventually she introduced me to a movement called the Crusaders, of which you will have heard, I'm sure. Yes, yes, yes. I was interested because not only was it a Bible do on a Sunday afternoon, but they did wood carving and they had a lot of sport as well. And so I was involved with Crusaders and camps. And it was at one of those camps in Sutherland Bay, Dorset, that I met with a man who, in fact, was a missionary from Africa, but home on furlough, who introduced me to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, that was something I was thrilled about at the time because I knew it would be uh, helpful to Cherry and then ultimately my other sister as well. 
and wonderfully, at, towards the end of their lives, both my parents were converted, which is, oh. is the whole story, really. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Now, just a simple question. Why do you follow Jesus? And I ask that question because there may be people out there thinking, well, why? Yeah, why? I mean, what, what, what's the purpose? What's the reason? You know, I could follow all sorts of people, but why Jesus? Well, I think it came about partly because of Cherry's conversion and the difference it made to her. She, she's a very bright lady anyway, and as I say, a very keen sportswoman. So it made a difference to her. And so that was the part of the original attraction. But I know, looking back over my life, that had I just been Robin Oak with no Christian faith, that would have been a dimension which was missing. And it's been so helpful in whatever job I was doing, whatever circumstances I was involved in, to know that I've got a, a, a prayer straight away to the Lord Jesus and to know his strength, also to know his forgiveness when I've done something which is wrong. And I, I would say now, looking back, it would have been impossible to have the life that I've had, which is, you know, has been pretty interesting. It would have been empty without my Christian faith. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Now, uh, you mentioned sport there. Um, <laughs> and actually, you're, you're a man after my own heart, because I, I love sport myself. I mean, my particular sport was tennis. And, uh, right. you know, um, but um, what are your what are your memories of sport growing up? And, and you know, what, what would have been the peak of your sporting achievement, would you say? <laughs> I don't know that I have many peaks. But I rang at grammar school in Surrey, which is a sporting school, and uh, had very many interesting people. That two of the masters there, the physics masters, were both Welsh international rugby players. Wow. So it was a rugby school. Yeah. And we also had there two fellows of my age who, um, in the school cross-country team that I was part of, they both represented England, and uh, Laurie Reed, one of them, was in the Olympics in 1960. Wow. But I, I was really this at the fellow at the back. Uh, <laughs> my job in the cross-country team was to urge uh, the, the first six up the hills. Uh, it doesn't matter where you come, Robin, get these people going, because it's the first six that count. <laughs> so you anyway, I've enjoyed running, and uh, quite often... Uh, as you'll hear later on, I ran the London Marathon, but and I just enjoyed the training for that, probably more than the marathon itself. Yeah, well, good on you. Good on you. Yeah. Um, now, um, after leaving school, you joined the civil service and then the Metropolitan Police in the late 50s. Question, why, why did you join the police? I mean, you could have joined anything, I'm sure. Why the police? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I left school before taking A-levels. And my father, who was a civil servant, thought it might be an idea if you get a job and get some income. And so here's the civil service examination, which I took. And the job that they gave me was with the Prison Commission, of all things, in London. Uh, and so I stayed there for three years, but it wasn't very satisfactory. I didn't like sitting at a desk pushing a pen or trying to type. I, I could see that I suppose working with prisoners might have been a, a, a helpful job, but it didn't really satisfy me. And I began to think rather than keep prisoners, why not catch them? So that's how it came about. 
<laughs> so you gave your life to catching catching people that would otherwise go to prison. Or yeah, there's there's to another prison. side to it. Because um, I was now age 19, I was called up for national service, but I failed the medical. And my parents, when they got this green card through the door, tried to find out from the uh, from the people, the powers that be, what is wrong with our son, and they wouldn't tell us. So my parents paid for what was quite an expensive private audience with a, a, in Harley Street in London. And the fellow there in two days must have touched every part of my body to find something wrong. And the only thing he said at the end of it is, Robin, you've got big feet. I presume they didn't have boots big enough for you. So here I was at the crisis, really. I, I didn't like the job I was doing. It was then that I saw an advert for policing. In fact, it was my sister who pointed it out in the Christian Herald. And I applied for it. But having to mention on there that I was medically unfit. But anyway, the situation was that before you're interviewed, you have a medical in the morning. Yes. And I told them about this and they laughed like mad that I've got big feet. <laughs> and in the afternoon, I enjoyed the interview and I could see that policing was going to be an interesting job, if not challenging. And they accepted me. So in 1957, at the age of 19, I joined the police force. Fantastic. And I won't ask you if having big feet was, was helpful being a policeman. <laughs> now, you, you served in different parts um, of London um, as a police officer, North London, close to the Lord's Cricket Ground, New Scotland Yard, the, the police headquarters there in Soho, in Brixton, different parts. And you were involved uh, with policing during the IRA bombing campaign in central London. Now, I want to leave the IRA bombing campaign to one side for a moment, because I'll ask you in a moment separately about that. But what are your general memories of policing in London? Maybe the highs and the lows. They're very good memories, actually. I went to the first station I was posted to was St John's Wood, as you've mentioned. Most of the police officers there were ex-servicemen, so therefore older than me, and there were just five of us probationers who went there with older sergeants as well. And I don't think they were too keen on our zealousness and the prisoners that we brought in and the reporting motorists and so on. But I enjoyed it there. And of course, going to see cricket as well, getting in free to Lord's Cricket Ground. Those were the early days. Incredibly, my chief superintendent after three years said to me, Robin, there's a vacancy in Scotland Yard, which I think would just suit you. There'll be an interview, but if you pass that, I would suggest you go with my blessing. And that's what happened. And that was the beginning. And it was the beginning of promotion, of course, because sitting in that office there, that was a very, very interesting job. I had to sit the promotion exam. They, say, they insisted that you sat the promotion exam within a year, which I did and fortunately passed and hence my rise to being a sergeant. And then in London in those days, the Dixon of Doc Greenwood rank was station sergeant. You probably remember that. Yes, I do. I do very much. And so I became a station sergeant. But while on the course, the chief superintendent took me aside and he said, look, you're obviously used to speaking in public. Well, all I, I was doing was preaching occasionally because I was still a young man. But he said, I'd love you to come to the training school and be an instructor. So in that rank, 
I never walked the streets at all. I was a, an instructor at Peel House, London's training centre. Yeah, so that, that was the early part. Uh, as a sergeant, I was in Soho, which was much rougher than St John's Wood, but actually a super place to work. I so enjoyed it. One of the sergeants there was a fellow called Nipper Reed, and uh, Nipper Reed was the one who eventually got the Cray brothers, but a super leader of men. And uh, I found Soho it was very challenging and long hours because they knew, I told them, I think, that uh, I used to, I was in the shooting club at school. Oh, we're just looking for a deputy firearms officer. And so that, <laughs> that gave me a, a month's training every month, one day out in Essex marches shooting people. So you, so, could, uh, add, you could add to your big feet a, a weapon now, a proper weapon now. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> now, you, uh, um, I, I, when I wrote this question, I sort of laughed to myself. I said, what involvement did you have with the IRA bombing in central London? I'm thinking... <laughs> You know, that, that doesn't come out right because, of course, um, you would have had no involvement in it other than from the, the side of the law. So, um, yeah, what, what, what was going on there and what was your involvement? Well, the whole, whole part of this was I had been on the inspector's course by now. And when I finished that, uh, I was very fortunate to win the, one of the two scholarships to go to university. So for three years, I left the police force and read law. And so when I got back to London three years later, out of, out of university, suddenly I was at a, a station called Rochester Road, which is actually Westminster, right bang in the middle with the Houses of Parliament and so on, straight into this IRA campaign, of which I only read in, for, for Northern Ireland. And uh, even my very first day there, I was called to a bombing at a post office. Fortunately, nobody was hurt because there'd been a pre-warning, but that began it. And uh, another day when, uh, once again, there was a bombing, I went to see what was going on. And I said to the sergeants there, look, you better cope with this. I've got raving toothache. I'm going down to the hospital to see if they can do it. So in the hospital dentistry department, and when the, my tooth came out, suddenly the windows came in and there was a bomb right outside the Westminster Hospital. And in fact, at opposite House House, where I first worked as a clerical officer. And so not only was I involved in it, I was actually virtually part of it because yeah. we were all slightly injured. I with, with the glass splinters. And there's another story to that, which is too long to tell, but I had actually... A So when I went there, after this out of the out of the hospital, there were four people killed and uh, several people injured and a lot of damage. So I was actually involved then, therefore, in the bombing. And one of the four uh, army officers who were with us to defuse bombings, one of them was killed, I'm afraid, in Oxford Street, defusing a bomb outside the Golden Egg. So it was three years of tension. But as an inspector, I was... Uh, obviously central to a lot of it and part of the conferences as well. Yeah. Did they catch them? Did you catch them? No, we, funnily enough, we didn't arrest anybody there. But later on in Northern Ireland, 
uh, a number of the terrorists there were convicted of bombings elsewhere, including okay. Westminster. So oh, in, in a yeah. sense we did, but I wasn't involved in that. Sure, okay, okay. Now, um, for 13 years, up until um, really nearly the year 2000, you were the Chief Constable of the Isle of Man Police. Um, what was that like? Quite different. <laughs> <laughs> I'd moved from London by then and uh, via the police training school uh, at Brams Hill up to Manchester as a superintendent. And uh, I, I got up to the assistant chief constable there under a super Christian uh, chief constable, Jim Anderton. But then I was invited to go for interview to the Isle of Man because they were as far as I could gather, a bit desperate because it was way behind the times, and it was. But that was a different challenge altogether. One, to be in charge, and two, to be out of the United Kingdom, because as you know, it has its own parliament and, and own laws in the Isle of Man. So I had to learn a bit. What I did learn was that my wife was actually, I suppose, partly Manx, in that a cousin of hers was on the police committee, um, part of the Duke of... of wherever it is in Scotland, part of that family, and Chris had married into it. So there we are. She came with me and we were there. because uh, the, by now the children were all married and doing their own things, but we spent 13 wonderful years on the Isle of Man. Yeah, well, so when you say Manx, that means Isle of Man, born and bred. It's a short word for the Isle of Man. Okay, okay. I, 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 need, I, I wasn't sure of that, so, so thank you for that. Now, um, you've talked about how you became a Christian, and a little about the impact uh, of that, but but what was the, the sort of what was the impact of being a Christian on how you carried out your police duties? What impact did your faith have on the way that you were a policeman? I think there are two ways of answering that, both of which are linked. Uh, the the police service has internationally a Christian police association. Yep. And that is, it's pretty live in a lot of places and Great Britain being one of them. And so I was involved in that. And therefore, one had a lot of encouragement from fellow Christians and also seeing policemen being converted, which was also great. So the other side of that was um, coping with the crises. I found obviously as a Christian that uh, prayer was very, very needed. I needed to pray not only for the instant things when, with the explosions and so on in London, but also with the whole policy as being a chief constable. And my thought had been right the way through from the rank of sergeant that people matter, whether they're criminals or not. And in fact, I had in my office, and I've still got it here, all people really matter. Now, I know at the moment there's a... Uh, thing about people with black skin to me everyone including the wrongdoers matter as far as god is concerned so i spent a lot of time praying through my work and praying for the prisoners and in fact wonderfully and occasionally introducing some of them to faith in christ that is so wonderful that absolutely is wonderful now i understand that you are the recipient of the queen's police medal so now don't be modest now robin why did you get why did you get it and who gave it to you well the queen gave it to me <laughs> <laughs> Buckingham Palace. 
I, I had no idea except that the inspector of constabulary, uh, uh, who's Lord Deer now, but I knew Jeff very, very well because we were on the same staff. He had a much higher rank than me, but we were on the staff at Bramshill Police College. He was our inspector, so I can only assume that he must have put the recommendation in, but one doesn't know anything about it yes. until a letter arrives to say you've got it, which I'm not embarrassed about it at all, but I just noticed only last week that the Chief Constable of the Isle of Man also got the Queen's Police Medal. So I've written to congratulate him for that. Isn't that wonderful? So do you remember what the Queen said to you? Uh, I don't remember word for word, but I will say this. It, it, it amazed me afterwards that she had something to say which was peculiar to me. And she must have done that for others who were there for different medals and whatnot. Uh, she'd obviously done her homework. And she was interested in my policing. And she had found out by somebody telling her, I have no idea who, that I was a Christian police officer. And she was glad to talk about that because she's a lovely Christian herself. Indeed. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Terrific, yes. Well, many congratulations for that. That's wonderful. Now, soon after retirement, you ran the London Marathon. Now, um, we, we share a common experience there because I ran the Berlin Marathon and fortunately Berlin is relatively flat and I know London goes up and down maybe a bit more than Berlin but I take my hat off to you because you wouldn't have been necessarily a sort of 20 year old when you ran that uh, which <laughs> I was so I mean and I know that you loved running when you were a younger younger chap um, so what was that like was, was that the only marathon you've ever run? It was, and I'm not going to do another one. Either. That's what I say. That's exactly what I say. <laughs> well, in any case, even whatever rank I was in, I'd love to go out running, especially early in the morning. And I've done that since I was at school. And with I, I just thought to myself, well, here's just something I could do for charity. It's something I like doing. And so... I trained hard, and in the Isle of Man, but it's hilly uh, hills, and it's, it's uh, quite quite difficult to run on the Isle of Man. But I found that the challenge of the Manx uh, was nowhere near like running in London, which is you've mentioned up and down, but it's actually fairly flat yeah. if you compare it with the Isle of Man. But I so enjoyed it. My dear wife was waiting on Tower Bridge to see me go past. But with the crowds that were there, she missed me, or, or worse, I missed her. And uh, it wasn't until we got back that she said, I did wave to you while you came across Tower Bridge. But there we are, that was it. Well, I have to say, um, I don't know about you, uh, you, were, you were obviously a, a more natural runner than I was, but uh, running a marathon for me, even in my mid-twenties, um, was the hardest thing I have ever done physically. Now, every marathon runner wants to know what one's time was. Are you willing to say what your time was? I can't tell you precisely. I know it was just, it was just about in the four hour mark. So oh. at the wrong end of the four hour mark. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I trained using the book of another of a lady marathon runner and she gave lots of tips, one of which was so useful. As soon as you finish, get into a cold bath. And uh, we, Chris and I got back to the hotel and did exactly that. And 
whilst that wasn't a very pleasant experience, it made all the difference. The next day, seeing other people who'd been in the marathon hobbling around, I was walking around like a young man. It was just incredible. I wish somebody had told me that because I couldn't walk for two weeks after my marathon. <laughs> when you do your next marathon, don't forget it. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not sure that's going to happen, Robin. Um, anyway, now I want to turn to slightly more serious matters, if I may. Um, yeah. On the 14th of January, 2003 your son Stephen who was a police officer was tragically murdered uh, when he with other police colleagues went to a flat in the Crumpsall area of North Manchester as part of an immigration operation Stephen was later posthumously awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for exemplary acts of bravery his funeral took place in Manchester Cathedral and was attended by the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair. I cannot imagine what that must have been like for you and your family. Um, if I may, um, I've got a couple of questions related to this. Um, how did he come to be murdered that day? Well, Steve was in the special branch in Greater Manchester Police. He followed me into the force and uh, we actually served in the same force together for some while. <clears throat> I used to ring Steve quite often to see how things were going. And I did say to him on the Sunday night when I rang, uh, what sort of a week have you got ahead? He said, it's a difficult week, Dad, but I can't go into detail. Steve was also Tony Blair's protection officer at the Commonwealth Games when they were held in Manchester. So they knew each other personally. I wondered if there was some connection there. But Chris, my wife, was in Altrium at the time looking after grandchildren because my daughter was seriously ill in hospital. And I got a phone call in the evening uh, Steve had said, you might pray for me on Tuesday, but he made no, diff no uh, reference to what it was. My deputy phoned me and said, Mr. Oak, I don't like to do this on the telephone, but I have to tell you before you see it on the news that Steve sadly has been killed. I probably was speechless for a moment, but I can't remember. I wanted to know the detail. And he said, I can't give you all the detail, but I know that's what ha happened. And no doubt the Greater Manchester Police will be on to you. And sure enough, they were. The Deputy Chief Constable, who I knew very well, phoned me and sympathised on the phone. Now, I've already mentioned that people who I come across in policing, they are people who are worth it. Uh, even murderers and thieves and robbers and so on, as I've already mentioned that, all people matter. And here I was being tested. What about this guy who's killed your son? Steve had been looking for this fellow deliberately because he was an escapee from a raid in London. And so on this raid in Manchester, which has nothing to do with that at all, he recognised this guy under a table and uh, in trying to hoik him out, not knowing he'd got a big knife up his arm, Steve was killed. I had to phone Chris 
and tell her the news on the telephone, having told my colleagues never give bad news on the telephone, but I had no option there, and to ring his sister, his other sister, who was at home. Next morning, my deputy phoned me and said, look, there's a plane load of journalists coming to the island. Uh, what shall I do with them? I said, well, get a coach, bring them down to Port Erin and the new police station there and set up a press conference. And I will be there at half past nine. Goodness me. I didn't, I didn't sleep very well, as you can imagine. Although my pastor and my prayer partner, who we used to meet once a week to pray together, they came and stayed the night for with me. Next morning, the press conference, it was incredible. The only time ever in a press conference that the press stood up when I walked in. And I thought that was very good of them, what difference there was. But one of the guys, after we'd been talking for some while, just simply called out to me, what do you think of the man who killed your son? Wasn't a question I was expecting. No. I, in silence, I prayed for wisdom. Yep. I wanted the right thing to come out. And it was a silent prayer. But I said something like, I don't know all the circumstances, and I certainly don't know the man, but I pray for his forgiveness, and I pray that God will forgive him. And suddenly this press conference, which had been very friendly and helpful and supportive, suddenly went berserk. They couldn't believe that a senior police officer could forgive a terrorist. As a result of that, of course, that got into the news and as an awful lot of uh, articles after that. And then eventually going across to England and meeting his wife and his widow, of course, Leslie, and the grandchildren, seeing Sue, who was desperately ill in hospital, but eventually was able to get out to the cathedral for the funeral. Now, you may wonder why it was at Manchester Cathedral. I, I wondered that myself, but when we drove to it, the streets were actually lined with people as if we'd come back from Afghanistan like they used to for the troops. Leslie, my daughter-in-law, said to me, wanted to please if you would welcome your colleagues to this. The place was absolutely packed out. And that's the camaraderie that there is in the police service. One of the things I said in my welcome to them to the funeral was, Today is not goodbye, Steve. It's au revoir, see you later. Mm. I hadn't appreciated that that would be the thing that people remembered. And we had, as a result after that, a host of letters. We counted them, 562 letters, wondering how on earth could I say, see you later? Yes. But it was a tremendous opening to an opportunity to talk about our faith and what we believe yeah. And looking forward to seeing Steve again sometime. Yeah. But it was a, a wonderful service. It was a praiseworthy service. The uh, orchestra that was there was uh, part, partly going to the same church that Steve and Leslie attended. But that was the beginning of it. And it was also the reason why, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, me writing a couple of books about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I don't know what to say, really, other than... Thank you for recounting that. Um, I have three sons myself. Um, 
I can't, as I say, I can't imagine what, what that must have been like for you. And, uh, and what an incredible witness, I have to say, um, to the press. And of course, the press have got access to lots of others through their writing. And um, so your faith was, was really uh, up and centre and front in that tragedy. And what a wonderful hope we have as Christians. Absolutely and, right. You know, I mean, that... One of the really encouraging things was within a week of Steve's death uh, at the airport in Manchester where the special branch office was, the padre there had said, we'll have a memorial service for Steve. And the place was absolutely packed to standing room only. The pastor said, look, well, I, I was, I've got a service here which I've worked out, but I'm not going to do it. We'll sing a hymn and I'll let Steve's colleagues speak. Yes. And he, his commanding officer got up and read a portion from scripture and said, I want to be the first person to speak because we're all going to miss Steve so much. But he, Steve, introduced me as his boss to Christian faith. That was the start of it. And one and another got up and talked about Steve and his Christian faith, including a young man who had become a Christian before he went into special branch, but saw Steve's name on the notice board, inviting people to a, 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 a service at his church I think and Steve was obviously a good counsellor for him to help him so that was a real encouragement even in the sadness of what we had. I mean looking back on that um, what might you say to someone else who has lost a child in, in well whatever reason really but, but what might you say to them how might you um, counsel them advise them what, what might you say to somebody in similar circumstances there may be somebody listening to this podcast who who is in a similar situation yes well i don't think there's a formula for it obviously part of it is listening and and trying to answer questions and so on especially christian faith but i think one instance will give you an idea of, of how one approaches this on the Isle of Man, some good friends, uh, both of whom played golf with Chris and me. Uh, their son was a, a Royal Air Force pilot and sadly was flying over Afghanistan, looking after the communications at 30,000 feet. And suddenly his plane caught fire after refueling to get back to Qatar where they were stationed and crashed and the the team, all 13 of them on the plane were killed. We knew Brian and Anne obviously very well. And I went straight round them when we heard this on the news and spent time with them and prayed with them. And it was in a sense, nice to know what it's like to having been through it, how we can help Brian and Anne in their loss. And that actually cemented our friendship an awful lot. I don't think there's a formula for it, uh, yes, Nigel. Yes. Yeah, you, it's it's a listening job. You go to we've meant obviously to many people who've lost somebody, not necessarily in tragic circumstances, but someone's died, just to listen and let them get that off their chest. Because they, I don't think there's a formula that you can use to help people. It was just the fact that with Brian and Anne, the sadness of all that of not going to be able to see their son again, having been killed in the air crash, but. I believe that our Christian faith, because Chris was with me as we went to see them that morning, 
um, enable us to pray with them. And I've never yet had anybody say, no, please don't do that. We feel that that's part of the answer. Yeah, I think we've got a lovely uh, friends of ours, Michael and Anne Healy, live in Scotland, and um, they've been pastors for many years. And Anne, Anne and Michael have this um, expression that they use um, in circumstances like this, and they say it's, it's, it's having a ministry of presence. Yes, I a think ministry, that's right. A ministry of presence, just being there, you know, yeah. which yeah. I think is, is helpful. Now, you've written three books. Um, and just finished another. So what first question, what are the what are the titles of your books? Well, the first book I wrote was uh, Father Forgive. And that was really a pressure from our own church in Port St. Mary on the Isle of Man saying that you've coped with this. You've spoken about this in public. Uh, what about it for anybody who has lost a, a family member? Um, can we not say Father forgive or whatever you'd like to call it? And that that I, from that moment, I thought, well, this could be helpful. So I wrote that. As a result of that, the pressure from the publishers said to me, we'd like to have a book of your whole police service. What about it? So I wrote another book called With God on the Streets. Actually, I didn't call it that at first of all. I, I felt, well, there's it's not the right thing to say. I wanted to quote uh, the Pirates of Penzance written by Gilbert. And uh, that, that was that a policeman's lot is not a happy one. But the publishers didn't like it. They said, we're a Christian pastor. Let's have something in the, in, in the title which says it's a Christian book. So I had to change it. Then I wrote another one called The Power of Powerlessness. And it really is about people who have got to the end of their tether not always to, to do with death, not by any means, but breakups of marriage, of children who've let the side down and so on. And there are several stories in that, the power of powerlessness. When people have nothing left, I'm sure the answer is in Christ. And so that's why I've done the book. This, this next book, which um, the publishers, I've got two publishers who are interested in it. It sounds like a critical book of the church, but it's actually putting together numbers of things where people have spoken to me. If I've been to speak at a men's breakfast or at a dinner or whatever, why this? And it's mostly people saying, why is the church out of date? Why are these these and thous and vouchsafe and so on? <laughs> Which I suppose if you've been a Christian a long while, you don't even question that sort of thing. But when people are saying that is actually a hindrance to us because it seems to be old-fashioned, but I'm sure it's not old-fashioned to us. You wouldn't believe it, Robin. And so I've written a book about that. I, whether, whether it will ever get published, I don't know, because I didn't want it to be seen as a, a, a critical book, but a, a book of critique so that we can actually put up to date what we know to be believing. Wonderful. And I think you can buy these, you can buy these books through... How would people buy these books? Well, Christian bookshops mainly. Uh, I don't know that Smith's or anyone like that would have it, but our Christian bookshop in Shrewsbury has no difficulty whatever in getting them. And Amazon. Um, I think Amazon, I think you can sell, you can buy them on Amazon as well. Yes, absolutely right, you can. Yeah, 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 wonderful, wonderful. Um, now, you are a leader of men and women, uh, and these skills have been recognised by many, uh, given your... 
people's requests of you to chair different organizations. Um, in a moment, I want to talk about the word of God and why the word of God is important to you. But first question about leadership. What do you think makes a great leader? And what lessons in leadership would you most wish to pass on to another generation? That's not an easy question to answer, as you can imagine. I uh, know, but but maybe some succinct nuggets from your experience. What makes a great leader? And and probably sim- similar, you know, what would you like to pass on to, to others who are maybe God is calling out to leadership positions or they, they just find themselves in a leadership position? So sort of top, top tips, really. Through my service, obviously, I had bosses, some of whom I considered to be good leaders, and one or two who I felt, boy, they could improve themselves a little bit because they had other interests. So there were things to learn from that. And especially Christian leaders in whatever field, if, if I could learn from them. I think as a leader, one, first of all, has to be a very good listener. Uh, that may seem strange because it's not every instant that you have that you've got to pick up the chalice and say, right, I'm going to lead you into this. It's, that's not leadership at all. Rank obviously brings leadership, but I think you've got to be a good listener. You've got to know to whom you're speaking and who are you going to lead and what are their needs. And once again, back to this phrase that I have up in my office, all people really matter. And it's not just colored people by any means, all people really matter. And that includes those you're trying to lead. So part of that is seeing them, but also being an example to them. It's no use saying one thing and being another. And that was a constant challenge to me that I'm actually doing the right thing. And I think for me, my leadership was coincidental with the fact that every day I spend time praying and reading the Bible. Now, of course, I'm I'm not in work. I can do it at my leisure in the mornings. But even even with shift work, it is possible, and, and I know it to be true, that spend time in prayer and Bible reading is part of being a Christian leader. So leadership in itself, I, I expect people have written books on this, um, but I still think it's the people to whom you're, you're going to give leadership as to whether they see the example in oneself. So it comes right back to your own personality. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, you, you, I don't know whether you know this, but as an organisation uh, precept, uh, which has been active for 50 years now, actually, uh, 50 years last year, uh, in many countries around the world, our focus, our heart is to encourage people to be reading and studying the Bible. And, um, you know, in my own life, uh, being a helicopter pilot in the British Army, um, I came to, came to a stage at a weekend, a uh, wonderful Christian man, uh, David Jackman, um, basically said, if you want to know God, you've got to read the Bible. You've got to read and study the Bible. And I was very good at English at school, and the Bible's a big book. Um, but I prayed, and the Lord brought us into this ministry called Precept. And some years later, I left the army, actually, to, to work full-time for them. And, and uh, there may be people listening to this, and I want to talk in a minute about why the Word of God is important to you. Um, but uh, for those that um, have heard a little about what Robin said about reading the Bible and praying and that sort of thing. I would encourage you to get in touch with us um, because 
we provide valuable skills and tools, practical ways to do what Robin is talking about. And um, I would just um, really encourage you to, to go to our website, precept.org.uk, and we can help you in your own journey of faith. So coming back to you, Robin, in a second, why is the word of God important to you? Well, there's so much to learn from it. And, uh, and the fact that I, I read the Bible and pray every single day, uh, there's always something new to learn and to to remember parts of it. Also, I think when you think over a day's work, you've done something which was a bit questionable or you don't think you did it very well, you can seek that forgiveness and say, what's the word of God saying about this? So you, there are lessons to be learned as well. And I find that uh, of, of uh, I, I read a fair bit of different books and I, they're not all Christian books by any means. I, I do love reading, but the Bible is the principal thing. And I read that every morning, whatever the day is. And I, I have all sorts of favorite verses in there and they all are an instruction to me to help other people. And I think that's what my life is now. I'm a, I'm a retired man, but I'm, I've still got a ministry, if I can put that in inverted commas, to people in the village and to people in a wider sphere when I'm traveling around. Fantastic. Now, do you have a favorite character or book in the Bible? My favourite character is Paul, because Paul was a terrorist. <laughs> he was, and of course he was there at the death of Stephen, and uh, he he was known for his dreadful acts. I mean, even the Christians wouldn't accept him when he was first converted. Yes. And then when I see the difference that that life had, came to be, the books that he, or sorry, the letters he wrote to young churches and so on, uh, not that I was a terrorist, but I've known him as a terrorist to have been converted. I also know of two terrorists in Northern Ireland who actually were on opposite sides, but were imprisoned together, and both of them were converted, and they got together and had a ministry, almost holding hands, enemies outside of Christ, but in Christ's brothers, and that was a testimony in itself. It's terrific. Absolutely. So, my favourite character. Absolutely brilliant. Now, you said you've got a number of favourite verses, but I'm going to put you on the spot, Robin, and ask you for one. Do you have one single favourite verse? Now, that may be your toughest question that you've had for a long time. <laughs> well, I, this, this verse is right at the front of my prayer diary, and I, I go for it every day. It's from Isaiah chapter 40. Father, you are the everlasting God, creator of the earth and the universe, you never grow tired or weary. You give strength to me when I'm weary, and you increase your power when I feel weak. I hope in you, Lord, and you renew strength in me to help me walk and not faint. That is, to me, a crucial verse. It's, I suppose there are lots of favourite verses, but that's probably at the top of the list. Yeah. Well, listen, I think that is that's probably a great place to finish, actually, um, Robin, today. Um, thank you so much for being willing to share your journey, both the highs um, and the really, really tough times in your life. Um, and um, your willingness to write, you know, write books. You know, you were a police officer, yet you become an author. <laughs> and that can't, can't be easy either. Um, 
I have to say on the quiet, I've been encouraged myself to write my story, but I haven't sort of got around to it yet. So maybe that can be a different conversation about how you, how you went about it yourself. But <laughs> I, I just want to genuinely thank you for your witness, I think, and your faith and your courage to be able to stand up. You know, you, you, you never lost your faith despite the circumstances. You were public. You were very open about your faith. And particularly, you know, in, in front of the press where we can feel maybe slightly um, cautious, but but there was never any doubt in your mind that you were going to share uh, share the love of Christ. And so um, thank you so much. I'm sure the Lord has got a lot more for you. Um, you know, you you will know more than any that um, Moses started his real ministry aged 80. Uh, Abraham, yes. Abraham was 75 when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Um, <laughs> And so, so Robin, I think maybe your best days are yet to come. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, listen, uh, blessings to you and uh, pray good health for you and your, your family. And uh, thank you, really thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Leslie Nigel, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to meeting you. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's just lovely to meet you. And I hope we can do the same another time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.